Hello there, cheering podcast listener. If I could just borrow your ear a moment. My name's Jonah, a content producer here at The Turing. And I'm Smara Jayadeva, a research assistant in data justice and global ethical futures. Together, we present Too Long Didn't Read, a weekly podcast brought to you by the Alan Turing Institute. We read the big AI stories so you don't have to. Each week, we'll be your trusted guides through the rapidly evolving landscape of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data analysis. Reading beyond the headlines to explore the history, evolution, regulation, and cultural impact of AI on our world and the people in it. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just AI curious, we've got you covered. Find Too Long Didn't Read wherever you get your podcasts. Too Long Didn't Read, out now. We're taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Turing Podcast. I'm Ed and I'm here with B. Hi, B. Hello. And today we're chatting with Carrie Hyde-Vermonde, who is a PhD candidate at King's College London and visiting lecturer in law, who teaches on the master's course for law and technology. Carrie was also recently on the Alan Turing Institute's Enrichment Scheme for PhDs. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so, so let's just to get started, um, do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself, your background, how you came to be working at the Alan Turing Institute and your sort of journey here? Uh, I've been a practicing lawyer for a number of years. Um, I did a law degree and then um, you know, trained as a barrister, was has always been in court. That was my sort of the world of my uh, practice was um, going into court. And uh, previous, you know, during that time, I was um, at some point a legal counsel for a technology company. So I suppose um, up to a certain point, I'd been immersed in the world of court, um, but also aware of, you know, this, um, uh, the interaction basically between law and technology. Um, and through experience um, in court, I thought that there was something going on in that interaction in court that suggested that it was there was something more than just the outcome that was important. Um, basically, I chose to move into academic research and um, and started uh, the PhD at King's, which um, has then led into my research. Nice. And so, has it been sort of throughout your career as a lawyer and stuff? You've you've noticed the sort of, you know, growing use of just technology in general, like what was the first thing that, I mean, if you go into law, um, maybe a lot of people who study law don't imagine they're going to end up um, working in sort of computer science or anything like that. So what was the sort of first thing that got you interested, the first sort of thing that, you know, really made you think you were going to go down that path? Well, I was always aware of uh programming and things like that because my brothers were very much um, right. into programming and I was also <laughs> very torn before I started my degree whether I would do law or physics for example so oh, right. I was always very interested in Quite maths different. and <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I kind of had to set that aside for a lot of years and just have it in the background as something I was really interested in but not really I couldn't see a path where these two sides of my personality essentially or my interests could be combined it's, it's nice that it was your interest as well i think i think typically the sort of like uh there's a there's a push from some families to be like oh you've got to be a doctor or a lawyer but um if you know if you're saying lawyer or physicist it sounds like that was more I your mean, own personal interest I mean, you're going to be both right a lawyer and a phd so technically a doctor and a lawyer uh, at this point true. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I <have thought> that. <laughs> yeah no it definitely it wasn't you know i wasn't under pressure um it was my uh free choice but uh speaking to my my, my brother was quite a bit older than me and he was, uh, you know, sort of in maths and he sort of said, well, you know, you're able to do stuff with English that, you know, maybe we're not sure about. And, you know, you can you can use your logic in law. So do that, basically. And uh, and he convinced me um, to do uh, something different. Um, and uh, yeah, no, no, no regrets, but uh, very happy now that I'm able to 
bring these things together. So speaking of bringing things together, I guess there's something, um, it's, there's a field called um, algorithmic justice, st- justice, sorry, which mean, which sounds like it's both of those things combined. So is this a new field? Is there a lot of research being done? And can you tell us a little bit more about what this is? Yeah, I mean, the, people have been talking about the use of AI or algorithms within justice for many years, Yeah, you know, um, but but what's What's happened now is, of course, we're starting to be able to actually do the things that we've been theoretically thinking about for a very long time. Um, And so, um, you know, it it could come down to there's there's various ways in which you can uh, do that. But um, it's about automating processes, essentially. You know, that can happen in um, policing or it can happen in the in the courtroom. Um, And. when you're automating something, you're taking away the kind of discretionary element, maybe that that's normally injected by a human being. Um, but it can seem positive because you're, uh, you know, what are laws? They're rules, and mm. you know, rules are things that can be uh, uh, potentially applied, um, you know, mechanically. You know, um, so I suppose that's very broadly where you might be thinking. You know, it's um, it could. Where other ways in which we look at it is statistical analysis of what risk factors are in, for example, um, deciding if someone's likely to reoffend. Um, so there's this kind of broad range of things which you could class under the idea of algorithmic justice. But essentially, it is that bringing in of um, automation or algorithms, AI into that process. I guess someone who is naive both about law and about computer programs and AI in general might think, well, you know, the law is just a set of rules. And if computer programming is just, you know, programming some rules, it should be possible to program uh, a computer program or, an, you know, an AI in quotation marks that <laughs> just sort of like interprets data and and can make a decision based on, on the law. But somehow I suspect it's a little bit more messy than that. <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, I'm always uh, in my research and when I speak about these things, trying to advocate for nuance. So um, it's not a clear cut answer. It's not 100% wrong and it's not 100% right in the sense that, you know, law is a series of rules and there is a whole movement for the, you know, rules as code where the idea is, is that we can take kind of legislation, you know, the sort of primary um, piece of law from the government to say, right, okay, uh, these are the rules and actually put them, instead of simply writing the law and then kind of translating it into, I don't know, a a program that distributes uh, social security payments, for example, doing these two things in tandem, developing the law and the code at the same mm. time as you're legislating. So I suppose there is there is that argument that that can be done. But I think that you're right when you say there are a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's, it's not clear cut. Um, I think what we need to do before we think, well, can we just put these rules into code, ask ourselves, what are we ask, what are we expecting from the justice system in itself? Because um, law is not just these rules, of course, but it's that kind of uh, interaction between the public and the state. It's bound up with all these things about whether we consent to the rules that are made about us, whether we consent to adhere to those rules. Um, So it's really important that if we're going to talk about, as we often do, um, reforming the justice system to bring in algorithms that can facilitate this, um, that we question what is our aim in doing so and and what you know what we're we trying to achieve when we do that i i guess i was going to ask is just if we also do it um in somehow in a blind way we risk i would imagine propagating what already already are systemic problems right because the law um Unfortunately, it's there are still a lot of problems with it that actually favors some people in regards to other people, etc. So I would imagine that having algorithms learn from this would also not be necessarily good in terms of for everyone, basically. Yeah, if it, absolutely. So um, if we're using historical data um, to feed into these things, well, we know that um, certain certain uh, groups are policed more heavily than, than others and a certain gr- therefore they're going to um you know that 
uh, is reflected then in the courtroom as well. Um, and these statistical uh, kind of, you could call them biases, obviously it's a bias in the data, which has actually been produced by humans in the first place. Um, but those biases then can be amplified because if we're going to just simply apply that and say, well, uh, we're therefore, if, if we're talking about algorithmic use in, in policing, um, we're going to say, right, okay, well, this area is more likely to um, be a source of where there's, where there's crime. Um, then, of course, you're going to have this self-fulfilling kind of notion because more resources will be piled in there. You're more likely to find, um, you know, inverted commas, criminals in that sense. So um, you're you know, there is that risk of biases. And so therefore, when we're looking at what we're trying to achieve with law and, and, and algorithmic justice, then um, we have to think very carefully about exactly what tools we're using and what we're trying to achieve with those tools. Um, I often say that there's, you know, in the case of, um, you know, if, if you and I'm not a medical science uh, data expert, okay, but but I, I know that if you um, biopsy, um, you know, a piece of skin, and you find that there's a tumor there. You can you can verify that there's a truth there that that, that there is a tumor. You cannot do the same with law. You can't be sure that you have guilt um, in many circumstances. So when you're trying to learn from this data, um, there's that added complexity that's within the legal sphere that's not necessarily present in other areas. That the ground truth is not necessarily binary, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and and it will be, and 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 when you think about the whole mechanism of justice as it is at the moment, um, prior to the use or the extensive use of algorithms, um, you know, it's a lot of this truth finding, um, and but but there's also the performative nature of justice, and we need to understand what's going on in there, what functions are being. Um, fulfilled in that process that we may not ever ever had to question before as whether we need to have them or not yeah that's interesting so i so i guess you know for those of us who don't know much about law you know it makes sense judges do the judging of evidence right they make decisions based on the evidence but you don't ever know like what actually happened and i mean i mean obviously you might have video footage and so on but that's still a kind of evidence right and um, you can be doctored nowadays so it's all it's all a judgment call and um just going back to what i was saying at the start so you know that a naive person might think oh well the the law is just a set of rules but um the it still it still comes down to people choosing how they interpret those rules and and how they sort of weight different, you know, evidence, you know, in, in terms of making a decision. And what you're suggesting is that um, there's now a push towards um, using AI, perhaps using machine learning to automate some of these processes. And obviously that's going to be learning by some kind of um, input data, which might be the judge's uh, past decisions. So could you tell us a bit, I'll ask you a bit about your, your own research in a moment about, which I think is more based on um, uh, modeling the decision-making process itself. But um, when it comes to what people are trying to do in terms of like, is it, you know, is it, is it that like people want to sort of speed up like the, uh, the, the number of cases that can be done in a day? What are the sorts of tasks that, um, people interested in this sort of intersection of technology and law are interested in improving. Okay, yeah. So um, I think I should say at the outset that I, I don't want to over-egg where we are at the moment in terms of using, <laughs> um, you know, machine learning to decide cases, at least here in the UK, you know. Um, but, um, you know, that's not what I'm saying, that we're not on that brink necessarily at the moment. But I think that it, as researchers, as uh people interested in the reform of the justice system and improving justice more generally, um, it's really important to look at all the tools that are available. So, you know, machine learning has to be looked at, other tools have to be looked at um, to be able to establish this. And um, of course, we've got um, a serious issue with delay in the justice system. Um, uh, and uh, even if we didn't, it would be strange if we weren't looking as to whether we could speed up justice um, because 
every day that passes, a witness's memory fades. Um, you know, uh, individuals involved, whether they're witnesses, uh, victims, uh, the accused, they're all affected by every day that passes in terms of um, of, a, of a case. And that's also true in civil law in in different in a, in a sort of different sense. So yes, absolutely. You know, um, one of the things one would be looking at is trying to speed up justice, try to make sure that justice is done quickly um, and that it's done uh, in a cost-effective way because, of course, uh, there's limited resources for the state. You can't just put all the money into justice. Other things like um, medicine, etc., require um, funds. So, you know, we, there's an interest in a limiting cost. Uh, but, you know, if we think of that term efficiency, um, you know, it, it's you know, what is expended per, um, I should get the, the de dictionary definition, but essentially it's, you know, um, per unit of cost, you know, what, what, but what are we aiming for? And again, my object, my thing, my statement is that essentially we're looking at, um, you know, understanding what people want to obtain when they look at justice, you know, and, and it can't simply be throughput. It can't simply be the number of cases that go through and not even necessarily the outcome. Um, and that's something that we're looking at as well. Is it necessarily, you know, correct or not correct from my personal point of view? That's not yeah. necessarily the thing. I mean, it's easy to imagine a, a, a perverse way this could go wrong. For yeah. those of us who think about AI, you know, if you design a machine learning algorithm, which its goal is to op optimize the number of cases seen, or you know, then it's going to yeah. do a bad job, but do it quickly. Or if it's going to optimize the number of convictions, well, <laughs> that's also not going to be very good because it's going to just convict people however it can. You know. But I guess there's other stages. Like for example, you, uh, I guess large language models can, for example, help with the bureaucratic part, not on the decision, but actually writing up all of these legal documents that have a structure and you have to write them a certain way. So if you have a model that actually helps you write, like how everyone uses large language models now to write emails, right? They can, <laughs> that could be like helping with the bottleneck, for example, that... Are you um, using ChatGPT to write your emails, B? Um, I am not. <laughs> I, I, I make no comments. <laughs> I neither confirm nor deny. Yeah. But it's, you know what I mean? Like, this can be the type of thing that it's not necessarily, I guess, AI just for deciding and for the justice part, but actually to help with the... Um, cost of the human cost of time cost of having to go through because i imagine you have a lot of bureaucracies that you have to get through right so if Absolutely. you can instead yeah. of having to write everything by hand and mm. i'm using a quotation hands that you cannot see <laughs> listeners but i guess this can be something that can help right in a more yeah absolutely and 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 there's lots of um uh lots of businesses looking at how one can use um you know, sort of uh, tech the technology to, for example, go through large numbers of documents. Yeah. Obtain, you know, look at where something relevant might be and pull it out. Um, there have not in the UK been examples of writing of judgments by <laughs> by by uh, one of these large language models or generative AI, and um, and but that does throw up again a question of what we're trying to achieve with justice. Yes, yeah. I think, and and so yes, there's massive possibility for the use of these tools um but always with a mind to are we you know let's just check we're not losing something that's actually important for example to the public in the justice yeah. process as we're doing it and that just requires constant vigilance and also an understanding of the, the models that we're using so maybe this is a, a good uh, segue to yeah uh, yeah could could you tell us a bit about your own uh, work in modeling decision making processes of judges um magistrates who are working on traffic fences yeah so um i wanted to really explore how um the the process of justice could be done through uh the use of an algorithm or you know so using these um using the technology that was available, essentially. And um, I didn't want to necessarily go from historical data for the, the, from the uh, reasons that we've discussed. So 
I did a, a sort of a, a scope of the area of law um, and have been creating with working with um, um, Pier, Pier Paolo Vibo for in King's College London, um, who is a physicist and, you know, obviously in computer science as well, um, uh, to create a model that would allow you to decide a very basic um, traffic offence um, of, for example, not stopping at a red light um, when you should stop. Okay. And, um, and that's possible because we're not in that kind of case, you wouldn't necessarily be looking at verbal evidence. You'd be having, um, a, uh, kind of textual input, really text input. So it's possible to do that quite easily by looking at, you know, the language used and things like that. Um, and the, the process is really, uh, although there is some of it that's directed towards deciding the offence, the main thing is that um, we're deciding, you know, mitigating and aggravating factors. And that's, you know, that, that's, it's a fairly simple algorithm. I wouldn't say that it's highly complex, um, but it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a way of probing how this could work. And then the main sort of thinking behind it is um, I'm also then showing that to participants in the research um, showing them, you know, visualizing how these decisions could be made um, and then trying to record from them their response to that. Because I want to try and understand where are the limits and why are there limits in terms of people thinking about using algorithms for um, judicial decision making. Um, why did this leads well into the next question, which is why is it important to consider people's input and their feeling towards this technology? Um it really goes to something that I was talking about, I think, a little bit at the beginning, which is, you know, that there's this relationship between the um, the people and the state, okay? And um, when you have... Uh, it's an understanding of how law functions to kind of connect uh, and uh, obtain the consent of people for that kind of... Um, power relationship, essentially, because that's what it is, because the criminal law allows us to remove people's um, liberty or, you know, um, otherwise penalise them um, for what... In this case, their as. driving licence, I guess. Yeah, you yeah. may remove their driving licence, put on penalty points, but there's also a kind of societal, uh, I don't know, burden that they may feel that they've been told they're criminal in some way. <laughs> and, you know, it has that impact, OK? So... Um, but what's important is that um, people must feel that, that the, the the justice system is legitimate, that the, that the you know the police, that the judges operating within it are legitimate in the way in which they they proceed, and that's based on research that's been done quite extensively, um, you know, looking at how justice is done and the procedures through which justice is done. So even if we're not, you know, if we're not looking at it from a rights kind of idea where we're thinking, oh, you know, human beings need to be treated in a certain way. That's that's absolutely an important way of looking at it. But if we're looking at it from the perspective of we want basically, you know, the system to work for people to, you know, be safe and be in a, in a society where there's um, laws that people abide by, we need people to trust that system. And if we undermine that trust through... Um, uh, you know, that by by not going through procedures that people see as, you know, supporting it and fair, etc. Yeah, um, yeah. That can have really extreme circum you know, like results. And and just for example, people not wanting to be witnesses, they'll you know withdraw from processes. So it's having that understanding about um, that law. It's not just merely a case of saying, right, here's a new law, you're just going to <laughs> abide by it. There's a there's a process going on there where people are, um, you know, learning, yeah. to, you know, living within those those bounds almost voluntarily and I giving mean, consent. It's it's easy for me to imagine a scenario where you've been given some kind of um, punishment for a traffic offence. You know, say you've, you know, driven into a yellow jagged box or whatever it is. Mm. You know, and by some automated means, you've been given a fine or something. Um, it sort of feels like it's much more difficult to appeal, perhaps. And, you know, I mean, is this the kind of things you're thinking about when you're, you know, talking to, as part of the research, you know, you know, interviewing 
people about how they feel about these decision-making processes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, the one of the examples that I use in my research is someone is not gone through has gone through the red light because there's a an emergency vehicle. And right, how do people right, respond yeah, to that? Yeah. But it's an interesting case because if it is just merely an ambulance that they've seen, it's still an offence, and it's still you know it's it, yeah. it's uh, it, there's there's some complexities to the law around it. Um, but I think that what we're looking at is even in what you might think, oh well, it's just traffic offence. People are very. It's not just a traffic offence because a this is one of those cases which is going to affect such a wide number of people you know like if we're talking about a theft or a murder or something like that this is a tiny segment of population in mm. you know in in the wider scheme of things but a traffic offense affects lots of people yeah, yeah that might be their only experience of the justice system and therefore if they feel that they've been shut out of you know yeah. what they consider a, a just process that can affect their relationship with the justice system more widely i guess there's always there's been as well like some sort of automation, for example, with the speed cameras, right? Absolutely. So people already have this um, hatred towards the machines that take a photo if you're speeding, right? So I guess this is like one level extra of mm. this is another case of like people trying to fight um, like an algorithm rather than just uh, a person, I guess. Yeah, and and also we, you know, this is not new in law yeah. in the sense that. Often we feel injustices are done by a, a rule-based system that yeah. doesn't necessarily mm. have to mm. be an algorithm. And I, what I'm really interested in is where are those boundaries and wh why are those boundaries occurring? Because I, I actually want to be able to use, um, you know, what tools are right in the right circumstances. Um, and so it's really interesting to try and engage with people and talk to them about why they see these boundaries and where they are. And and part of my sort of visualizations and trying to show people is so that we can work out whether there are circumstances actually where AI or an alg you know or just a simple algorithm but which could prevent sort of a human decision maker from falling into some kind of logical fallacy where they think that certain bits of evidence add up to guilt, right. but they're not actually adding up to guilt. And, um, you know, I can talk more about that, but, you know, um, there's obviously problems in the justice system, which we would like to see if we can solve. We need to build this conversation with the, you know, with the public, um, to be able to have a shared kind of, um, vocabulary and ability to talk about these things and um, you know that's partly why I've been involved in things outside of research and looking at art and various other methods but yeah it's just um, we need to be able to have this conversation because actually that's the justice system is so based around people understanding what's going on within it it's not mm. like a you know, an esoteric thing that's supposed to be um, just behind closed doors. This yeah. is a very different off offering and therefore, you know, it's super important in these circumstances. So you mentioned a bit about um, collaborating with uh, with art artists there. So mm. um, you did a bit of 3D environment modelling um, in, in this research. So how did you use that? Um, I believe it was something around you know, prompting discussion around these legal issues. Um, so I haven't looked up exactly what you did, but if I was to guess, is there is there some kind of way in the 3D environment where, you, you know, if you, you gave the um, sort of um, going through a red light when there's an ambulance coming scenario, is that the kind of scenarios that we're talking about, like sort of visually showing people? Yeah, it's it's actually quite different to that, interestingly. So this is um, <laughs> the Mercy Project, which uh, I've collaborated with um, Vivian Griffin, uh, artist at Somerset House Studios. And, um, you know, the, the environment is a three, 3D environment, like you say. It's visually quite striking and um, also has a soundscape designed by Vivian. Um, and essentially what we use in that environment are metaphors to allow us to explain concepts within law and algorithms. Um, and so I've used it in workshops, I've used it in teaching, but also in, you know, sort of broader workshops. Um, it's been exhibited in art gallery um, in Berlin as well and, and in other places. 
And essentially, um, you might see, uh, you know, you're going through corridors and things and and it's difficult to describe without showing it. But, you know, essentially, you you start to gain a sense of uh, decision tree algorithms, for example, through the, the, the structures. Uh, and then see, we can pause. If we're using it as a workshop, uh, we can pause there and have a discussion about nature of these different algorithms. Um, within the environment um, is a kind of clue to a, a legal case, which I can, you know, talk about. For example, it's a snail in a bottle, but it's, uh, you know, lawyers will remember, will know the case of, of Donahue and Stevenson, but the name of the case is not relevant. The, what is relevant is um, how I can use it to explain how law has organically developed through a sense of uh, injustice in certain circumstances. You know, that's how we developed the law of neg negligence was there was no way to um, compensate this particular person who fell ill after there was a snail in this bottle. Um, you know, how much do we need to retain within a justice system the ability to have a human being register that there's a, um, you know, something within the rules is not working and, and address mm. it. So we, you know, we're using, but, you know, at the moment, it's very, uh, as you say, me, as I'm saying, metaphorical rather than is, is, sorry, this kind is of the, concrete Is the snail in the bottle a metaphor itself, or is that some aspect of this particular it case? Was a, it was a snail in a bottle of ginger beer. So that was the key oh, case right, right, right. fact. But yeah, so it allows us to sort of go into these. Um, there's like, there's rubbish within the uh, this it's a very austere environment clean but then there's this pile of human rubbish with you know sort of cigarette butts and mm. things like that and we can use that to just to to sort of highlight the the fact that human biases are re replicated in data that the you know that various things we can have really insightful um spring off conversations uh, in an attempt to get people, and I'm not just saying the public here, it could be professionals, lawyers, yeah. um, you know, judges, for example, um, uh, to, to have these conversations. And and in workshops, it's it's worked really well. What I'd really like to do is to develop it further so that it wouldn't require me being present mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. talking about it, but it was integrated within the environment um, that we can have, you know, further discussions. I think people remember... The, the metaphors and like the visual things that you create a lot more than if you could just tell them. Mm, so yeah. so it's if if you have all of these like metaphors and all of these very visual things, people will remember. Maybe they wouldn't remember that data might have biases, but if you remember it as there was rubbish in a very clean environment, they will have like this image, I guess. So that's mm -hmm. kind of how you end up having a more memorable uh, yeah. in the audience than rather than. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, that 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 sounds like a really um, interesting approach to doing it. I'm, I'm wondering, so like, out of these workshops you run with this um, environment, like, what um, what are the sorts of things that the participants? Firstly, who are the the sort of workshop participants? Uh, you mentioned they might be judges, for example. What are the kind of ideas they come up with, or what's well, the insight they gain from this? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 trying to arrange a judge workshop. This is you know part of the plan, but um. I, the ones that I've done so far, um, you know, might be um, students, for example, you know, mm. um, and they... Um, the perfect guinea pigs. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Often the first guinea pigs, but... Um, uh, but but from different backgrounds, so people who don't know anything about, for example, data science or law necessarily, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and having this conversation where they're they're seeing how these, you know, that this clear, as you said, this the vision of rules. Therefore, let's make these a um, reality through code. Um, is not a it's not a, a smooth run. It's not impossible, right? Um, right yeah. But it's very you know it, it's not easy, and therefore we need to um, you know understand the nuances, work through them, and we need as many brains on the case, you know, uh, you know, and, and as many um, viewpoints and different uh, viewpoints on it uh, as possible. Um, often there's sort of perception that, you know, the public as a, as a body don't agree with the idea of algorithms in justice or whatever. But I think that it's far more nuanced than that. And I think that there's, um, you know, that, that 
some I've spoken spoken to justice campaigners who have said, well, actually, no, we want the consistency. We want the yeah, uh, yeah. We, we need uh, some improvements in this area or that area. And I think it's it's a long road, but I think it's something that requires a lot of thought and uh, and work on and a lot of involvement of the public, which is the the key to understanding whether something is working or not. I think consistency sounds like a a key benefit, right? I mean, even if it's um, somehow, as you, as you mentioned, some decision tree algorithm or something, where you know, but your hope because it is uh, an algorithm, you're hoping that like the output from a given input is going to be the same or similar. So the in this case, it will be the sort of the I guess the, the suggested uh, penalty for whatever the crime is. Um, and I'd imagine that in 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 the reality of you know what we have at the moment of of, of real world you know different judges and people um, that there isn't that consistency always because there is a certain amount of um, you know human judgment involved in in interpreting the law. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's. Um... Uh, consistency has always been something that's been, you know, something that's strived for within the law, uh, you know, historically, way before algorithms, yeah, uh, yeah. or rather yeah, yeah. computer algorithms <laughs> came on the, on the pro on, on the scene. And, um, but there's always been this push and pull because, of course, we can't know every rule. We can't know, uh, sorry, we can't know every circumstance, especially in law. And there's also that real concern in law specifically that it will adapt with social expectations. And we know what might have seemed a perfectly acceptable rule, you know, in one, you know, in one decade becomes completely abhorrent in another decade. And we, you know, we need to be able to uh, see how, you know, so to see that, but also how does that mechanism work? Actually, sometimes it's the individual judges expressing concern or saying, well, this is not right, or juries might refuse to convict on a particular um, thing. So it's it's sort of looking into, okay, consistency is really important because uh, we want to know that, you know, well, people will be treated more or less the same yeah. in the sense of, not you know, not different rules don't apply to different people. But... Um, I mean, we hope so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's what we want. And, and, but, you know, we know that humans don't necessarily aren't able to achieve that, which is what you're mm, referring mm, to. Yeah. Um, it, but I think the concern is maybe with an algorithm is that if it's going down the wrong road, then that applies to everybody. Whereas if one person goes down the wrong road, then maybe, you know, I don't know if I explained myself very well, but the um, you might have one bad apple. And essentially, if you, you know, use that phrase, uh, somebody who's, perhaps bias, you know, and, and therefore making uh, decisions that are not based on law, um, we can hope that in the sort of broader context that more people are are doing it correctly. But, you know, we don't know that necessarily. So, yeah, absolutely. We're looking to try and, and achieve some kind of consistency, but mm. be flexible as to what, um, uh, and that's why discretion is often used as a kind of counter to consistency within the uh, legal process uh, to allow that flexibility. Well, and how what do you do we mean build by discretion in? in this context? Oh, well, discretion as in um, the ability, so having a range of possible out out actions. So, you know, you, right. you may have um, a flexibility in as to what exact sentence you give or what weight you put onto a certain piece of evidence that's kind of discretion because that's a freedom for that individual to choose how much they do um, apply so you know that's one of those areas where we say well there's a bit of leeway therefore to adjust yeah, compared yeah, you know yeah. on, uh, if you think that the strict application of rules um, is going to be in some More way problematic yeah than, problematic than good uh, I have, I have, I have like an an example of where that might be the case, and this is also where, you know, people might be skeptical of um, of of AI or any kind of algorithm making a decision, um, which is that we don't typically think of like it's difficult to program what we call quote common sense into yeah. computer mm. programs. So, I have an example, and it's not from from lawyers or judges, but from the police. So there was an example, and this was a news story of. Um, so like it's it's not uh, within the law to just open up like a food stall or a market anywhere like on a residential street or something 
and some the 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 news story was like some you know a young girl was just like you know selling lemonade on outside a house and a police officer came and told her to stop and then and then of course the the superiors of that police officer then you know um disciplined that officer saying well okay that's you've you what you've done there is you've applied the law in a very rigid way you've not used your common sense like you shouldn't have you shouldn't have told that girl that she what she was doing was wrong but if you're an AI, how how can you know that? Like you, mm. I mean, this human didn't know that, didn't have the common <laughs> sense, but the AI definitely isn't going to have um, that kind of common sense. So I, yeah. I wonder if, like, um, within within the law and within what you were just saying about discretion, um, this is where you know judges using their not just common sense but certainly their legal sense comes into play, and it's like, how can you really get that out of algorithms? Yeah, and we've had a um, you know a historical way in which we've kind of monitored that common sense because of course we've often had judges that are of a different state you know sort of social demographic than a lot of people right. being yeah. dealt yeah. with, yeah. and that that way in which common sense of monitored is often by open justice, right? So allowing people into court and allowing people mm. to see those things. So you know what you say is very you know interesting and important is how do we find the same mechanism in a way to ensure something that's equivalent to ensure that if an algorithm is making a kind of decision um that that there's a way in which it's open for people to see and call out mm. if it's going beyond and i i don't think that should necessarily be left to an elite kind of group to do yeah. um that you know and then and i think we need to look at how justice has worked historically and this, you know, it's always been a, it's always been people who have gone off, like you say, you know, and used rules to the extreme or not, not actually, um, operated their common sense. Um, you know, we need to be aware of that same problem being magnified essentially with algorithms because they simply will, they're not brought up as, you know, <laughs> within the society necessarily, but they might be able to take data in. But, you know, as you know, there's limitations and we just have to be aware of how we do that. I, I, I think that, um, you know, there's no other way than through testing and, ex, you know, experimenting mm. and, and yeah, checking, yeah. but, you know, doing so obviously with a real awareness that these human beings that are being uh, essentially judged and, uh, yeah. So more research around algorithmic justice. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have a question. I think I guess it's the other side of the coin. Because now we are in a phase in our, I guess, in first time in humanity where the judges have to judge an algorithm. So, for example, a self-driving car, right? Oh, you right, have yeah, those yeah. cases, right? Where well, how do you apply common sense to the decision of a self-driving car to actually, <laughs> I mean, worst case scenario, drive over someone or something like that, I mean, right? I guess so, the difference is that the self-driving car doesn't have any human rights. So if we decide that it needs to be destroyed, you but know. Who do you, yeah. But for example, who do you attribute the blame to? Is it the company that made the car? Is it the person that was in the car and didn't? Mm, yes. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's, a, it's the other side of the discussion, right? Which is how do you now have the law evolving with the fact that you have to judge things that are not necessarily human mm. decisions that were done? Yeah, there's a temptation to kind of, uh, you know, think of them as human operators, yeah, isn't yeah. there? And, and attribute uh, morality to them. Um, I mean, I think that that's a, probably could be a whole <laughs> podcast in of itself. Um, but I think that it's interesting, you know, um, it's definitely an interesting thing to think about and something that law, uh, you know, law schools need to grapple with as well in terms of, you know, educating people ready to deal with the rapid evol evolution of technology in this field, you know, and making sure that, um, you know, it's not enough just for lawyers to know the law anymore. They need to be able mm -hmm. to be flexible, adaptable, and understand these technologies that are being used. Um, there's always been certain lawyers that are interested in that kind of thing, but I think that's much broader now and something that needs to be uh, looked at. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, judged by your peers, should it just be judged by an algorithm? You know, yeah. exactly. <laughs> an algorithm judging an algorithm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Could happen at some point. I mean, yeah. still, we rule it out. <laughs> Um, and maybe a more maybe a more general question then before we wrap up. Um, I'm just wondering, like, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the sort of rate of change in technology and and how that 
that interfaces into the legal system. I think in in general and sort of governments and regulations and stuff, there's a sort of there's a bit of a pessimism at the moment that, you know, it's just not possible for, you know, regulators of technology to really keep up with what's actually happening because it's so fast and those people are not necessarily uh, technologically literate or even if they are they're sort of playing catch up to you know the 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 companies and the computer scientists and the ai specialists so you know how 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 do you feel with regard to the law yeah i, I don't feel pessimistic i don't but i think that um you know i actually feel like this is a challenge, an interesting new challenge, a new chapter, essentially. Um, and I think that uh, it's going to require real agility and change within um, what has been the legal sector, whether it continues to be seen as like a sector in itself or whether we need to adapt our ideas as to how law uh, works in society more generally. Um, that will remain to be seen. But I think that, um, you know, we're it's a challenge that's worth taking on and dealing with. Um, certainly don't feel pessimistic, but I think it requires a real focused effort to uh, and a knowledge of what we're trying to achieve. And that's, uh, I think, communication there, education communication is going to be absolutely key. Um, yeah, uh, but I think that continuing to do things as we do at the moment is not going to work if you're talking about law and regulation. Um, I mean, in in I also teach uh, you know law fint law and policy of fintech, and you know there you see in a field where things have been always pushing the boundaries because you know financial you know m money talks essentially uh, where there's financial technologies that's you know there's there's a real um, motivation then to innovate very quickly and regulators come up with things. Things like regulatory sandboxes, ways in which they can deal with um, a rapid evolution of of, of technology, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it just requires uh, yeah renewed efforts. But I think that it's not necessarily something to be pessimistic about. I just have a, a another question that's sort of prompted by what you said. Actually, is so say I I think I think what um, regulators do in finance is like now, and maybe this would be more difficult in the past. Is you know you you know, you just they just hire someone from the big banks who who knows you know the the stuff that they're going to be regulating. Is is that is that does is there a comparable thing that we can get in sort of in in, in general in criminal law? But then who would yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no I think it's a bit of a frontier really in that sense like as in like we need to because who are we doing it for? Whereas in in fintech there. There's a motivator in a sense of trying to make money. Um, we can there, there's an activity there. Here we really need to put front and center in in you know justice is who we tr whose interests are we working in and what's the best way to administer justice. Uh, that's a story to be written, really. You know something that we we need to be working on, and that's why you know um, this constant evolution, iterative development of. Um, but but with the inclusion of the the public, uh, I think is the is is a is a good process to go through um, because uh, yeah I mean I don't I don't think there's necessarily an easy if someone you can easily import into that process and go hey no, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. work this out but there are I think there is a lot to be learned from different disciplines um, a bit of lateral thinking um, and looking how other people. Um, resolve our decision you know use decision making resolve things etc um but yeah justice is a bit of a special case i think um but you know there's, hence why we need to be really aware some parallels and um, maybe b you would agree with this but what we're a bit more familiar with um with sort of healthcare sector mm -hmm. in that you know, there's obviously a lot more um decision making going to be you know outsourced to 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 um computer programs which makes sense you know we're we're obviously trying to um figure out the right diagnoses and stuff for um based on and you know research in healthcare is obviously going to be largely computational nowadays um so i i, I can see oh, and what i was going to say yeah so the parallel there is um you know consulting the public on how their healthcare mm -hmm. data might be used is it, you know that's that's a whole big thing now um and um and how the algorithms might be applied to that. So I think there's a, there's a parallel there. there. There are. I mean, in the sense of 
decision making and 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 um having a consultation with people to see what it's like but i think that you can't overlook that in law really the process is is part of like what we're trying to achieve the mm. the actual process why people you know often want their voice to be heard they want to be uh whether they're witness accused or whatever they want to have their moment of being heard and mm. what does that achieve we we still haven't fully bottomed that out um and we've never had to until now we're we're looking at the point where you could automate this kind of decision making so um i think i'm not trying to downplay the uh you know the the the, the similarity with med- medicine because mm, sure, i think there yeah. is yeah. a really yeah. strong one um and something that we can really learn from um but uh but yeah just a n- slight nuance there that needs to be definitely plumbed out i think and also in medicine you have a lot more like a certain ground truth than you have in yeah. guilt for example yeah that's so true that, yeah. so in health yeah. you can diagnose a or b mm. even if it's fuzzy but as as we said in the, as you said early on yeah. guilt is not mm. necessarily something mm. that is black or white exactly yeah yeah well that's uh, it's a it's a big bit to end on so. yeah. <laughs> we, we went um, full circle if you think yeah, about it yeah, yeah. <laughs> well carrie thanks so much uh, for coming on the podcast uh, before we let you go um, where should people go to find out more about you and your research, if anywhere online? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, th- huge thanks. It's been really interesting, and thank you for having me on. Um, and so, I do have uh, what was formerly known as Twitter. Um, <laughs> I still, I think we, I will still continue. Are we still, it? yeah. So, yeah, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's at, still Twitter.com, isn't it? Yeah. At depending C on when underscore hide underscore v. Depending so, on what yeah. point in the year, um, this should be released late 2023. This podcast, um, who knows what what it, it may, will be called by I then? Mean, Absolutely, we'll it could be called Why by then. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, mostly. Uh, so Twitter. Uh, or X is my um, is where I uh, often am seen. Um, I do have a web page, uh, but I feel like it'll be very long for me to explain it. So um, you might be able to put a link uh, on the page. We can do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. This was a really interesting conversation. Thank cool. you. Thanks. Yeah, really, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The show is hosted by me, B. Costa Gomez, Ed Kalstri, Joe Dungate, Christina Last, and Anika York. And the episodes are produced by Luca Lane. Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram. 